Second Corinthians chapter, or sorry, Second Kings chapter 12. How many of you would consider yourself an expert in the Arameans? Less than football, that's, that's something. <laughs> I encourage you at some point to read through these, this section of 2 Kings, the first 13, 14 chapters of 2 Kings, and it is really interesting uh, because it goes through many different kings, but, but one prophet pretty much through the whole time, Elisha. Elisha lived through several different administrations, uh, several different uh, kings on both sides of Israel and Judah. But the common enemy during this period of time was the Arameans. I mean, if they were to make a TV series about this, it would be really good. The only problem is they'd mess it up and put a bunch of stuff in it that you wouldn't want to watch, right? Like that's what the world does. But this would be a good TV series because the amount of political intrigue, the amount of, of, of shifting of power, and the work of God through the prophet of God is, is not only interesting, but it's, it's, it's enlightening because you see how God uh, didn't limit himself to just speaking to his own people. He even spoke to the Gentiles who were willing to hear it. So Naaman, remember Naaman? Or properly pronounced, probably Naaman. But Naaman, remember him? He was a captain of the, of the army of Aram. So he was a captain of the, of the Aramean army, and uh, he was healed. Uh, there was another situation, I love it, when uh, Ben-Hadad, the, the king of Aram, decided he wanted to capture Elisha and, and, and probably kill him. And so he sent an army uh, to this big walled city, and uh, Elisha was there, and, and Elisha, uh, Elisha's servant starts freaking out, and Elisha says, don't you know there's more for us than against us? Open his eyes, Lord, and his servant sees these, the army of God and the chariots of the Lord. And then God just blinds this whole army that was come to, to get Elisha. And, and they're wandering out blind, and Elisha comes up and says, can I help you? And they're like, yes, please, we need to go here. And he says, go, follow me. And he leads them right into Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. He leads them right there, and when their eyes are open, they got a bunch of soldiers around them with spears pointed at them. And instead of killing them, Elisha says, give them a meal, give them something to drink, and send them home. You'd think that the Aramans would say, we like this guy, we like Elisha. But they don't. Because not long after that, they attack again. Uh, some of you will remember the story. Do you, anybody remember the story of the four lepers mm -hmm. who found food when no one else had it? Yeah. My memory cleaned up that story quite a bit. I just remember there were a bunch of people that were hungry. Four lepers said, we could die here. We could die at the hands of the Arameans. We might as well go there and die quickly. And they found that angels of the Lord had chased the army away, and they found all this food and all this stuff. But what I had forgotten was what happened leading up to that. The siege of Samaria had gotten so bad that people were eating their own children. That's terrible. I've never even, I've never even come close to imagining how you could do that. Desperation brought these people to that place. The king got so mad that he went to go um, execute Elisha. But God warned Elisha and Elisha stopped him. So the Aramans were constantly a thorn in the side of both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And Elisha was at the center. There was a time 
where Ben-Hadad sent his, his, his right-hand guy, Hazael, sent him to Elisha and said, um, tell me, I'm, I'm very sick. Am I going to live or am I going to die? And Elisha looked at Hazael and he just stared at him for a while until he became ashamed and he began to weep. And Hazael said, why are you crying? And Elisha says, because I know what you're going to do to my people. I know how you're going to hurt them and kill them. And I know what you're going to do to our kids. And then he sent them away. It's hard to imagine how God could let this go on. But what God was waiting for was for his own people to call on his name, to listen and obey. They went back and forth. The kings of Israel had fallen into the sin of Ahab. Ahab married a daughter of a priest of Baal. And Baal worship carried through the, 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 the army, carried through the, um, the royalty of Israel. So we come to the end of Elisha's life. And the Aramaeans have been a problem this whole time. They've killed innocents. They've killed children. They've taken prisoners. And Elisha's about to die, and there's nobody to succeed him. There's nobody coming after him. So he goes to the king, and he says, I need to have a meeting with you. And this is where we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 12. Pardon me, 2 Kings 13 and verse 14. Now, what's confusing about this is there's a whole bunch of Joashes and Jehoashes. You know, in, in, in Hebrew, the J would be most likely pronounced like a Ya. So, Yoash, Yehoash. But for the sake of just us all understanding together, let's use our good old Canadian pronunciation and just call them Joash. It's confusing because there's a bunch of them in this time period. There's one that's king of Israel. There's one that's king of Judah. There's one that's dead. There's one that's still alive. But this king is king of Israel. Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What he's saying is, this prophet is worth more than all of his armies. This prophet is the heart of the kingdom. This prophet is, 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 is really, he's saying that the, the power we have came from God, but, but you were the hope. You were the one who communicated that to us. And he weeps over him. And in verse 15, Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, open the window towards the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, or Yahweh's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. Now, I don't know. There's, there's scholars disagree about this, whether or not he took arrows and just started hitting the ground. Many scholars believe, because the word strike the ground could mean he just took arrows and whacked the ground. But it could also mean, and this seems to make sense, that he meant keep firing out the window and just fire it into the ground because there was no target, right? So he's shooting an arrow, it's hitting the ground. And for a trained warrior, you just feel silly doing that. If I gave you a gun and said, just shoot, shoot at what? Just shoot. Well, you would say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, you know, I don't want to do that. I, give me something to shoot at. Give me a target. Just shoot towards the east. Well, of course, 
you'd have to make sure you were in wide open spaces, right, with nobody for a long way. But that would be difficult for you to do. You wouldn't want to do that. Well, at least with arrows, you know they're going to hit the ground. They're not just going to go and hit some poor farmer on a tractor, right? So <laughs> strike the ground three times, but you feel, still feel silly doing it. But the prophet doesn't say do it three times. He says strike. And in English, that sounds like a one-time thing, but in Hebrew, this is a continuous. This is strike and keep striking. Just keep shooting. So the king does in front of all his friends, in front of all his underlings, in front of his captains. He shoots out the arrows. He, takes them, he shoots three times and then he stops. Nowhere here does Elisha say stop. He just stops. And it says this in verse 19, So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. And they were burying a man and behold, they saw a marauding band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. And that's just left there. It's just a, that's the end of that story. Just two verses. <laughs> no more time is spent on that. We won't even spend any more time on it this morning. Let's move on from that crazy story. In verse 22, Now Hazael, king of Aram, that, this is the guy we were talking about earlier, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which had been taken in war from the hands of Jehoaz, his father. Three times Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. How many times? Three times. If you were to go on in the story, the Arameans still were a problem for many years to come. In fact, it was the Arameans that helped the Babylonians when they took Judah. And the Arameans could have been dealt with right then and there. The army could have been dealt with. But the king only had the guts to shoot three arrows. Only had the guts to do it three times. And you know what? He got back what he had lost, but he made no further progress. Naomi this morning talked about defense is not enough. You can't just live in reaction to the kingdom of darkness. God did not create us for this. Like I've said to you before, it's very easy to lead a defensive lifestyle because then you don't have to decide. You can just sit back and wait for the battle to come to you. We've talked about this before, but if I were to say, are you in a battle right now? Or if I were to say to you, I'm in a battle right now, we all assume that we're being attacked. Mm -hmm. I'm in a battle right now, brother. Oh, what's wrong? That's what we say, right? What's wrong? Why wouldn't we say, well, you're in a defensive battle or an offensive battle? I know that sounds weird, and we don't like to talk that way, but let's be honest. We're so used to just sitting back behind our walls and just trying to keep what we have, just trying to stay where we are, that we say, the enemy's attacking me. I better fight it off. And then we stop. Yeah. Right? We just stop. God didn't create us for this. 
that the church would stay behind their walls and just wait and hope we don't shrink and hope we don't die and hope we don't get beat up too bad. He called the church an expansive church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, he talked about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed that starts small but then takes over the whole garden, like a little bit of yeast that expands and takes over the whole loaf. God compared his kingdom to something that is always expanding. Jesus said the kingdom of God is rapidly advancing and the violent take it by force. It's not a defense of life. There's times when you're under attack and you got to fight and you got to put up your defenses. But there's other times, what happens when everything is okay in your life? What happens when you don't feel under attack anymore? What happens when your family's doing okay and the church is doing fine? What are you doing? Waiting for the next attack? Or are you counterattacking? Are you saying, I didn't, I did, God didn't put me here just to tread water and keep something? Because in the parable of the talents, the guy that buried his talents in the ground just hoping not to lose anything was the guy that Jesus called lazy and wicked. <laughs> this cautious lifestyle of hoping we don't lose anything. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, master, savior, Jesus said is lazy and wicked. Those are two things I don't want said about me. Now, of course, the Jesus in the Christian bookstore holding the lamb would never call you lazy or wicked, <laughs> right? Because he loves you. And yes, he does love me. And yes, his grace is more than sufficient for me. And yes, his mercy is new for me every morning. And yet, I want to live a lifestyle that reflects the goodness of God. That says, I'm stepping out. I'm not just trying not to displease God. I actively want to do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And the reason we read this story is because it bothers me when I read it. It bothers me because I can totally see myself doing exactly what the king did. This is silly. What's the point of this? Can I stop now? This is embarrassing. Here I am just shooting at nothing. What's the point of this? I truly believe Elisha came into this meeting not knowing what would happen, but waiting to see what the king would do. Remember, Elisha had said before, you will utterly destroy these guys. You're going to take away their capability to attack you again. Right? Right? Not just take back the cities you've lost, but make sure these guys are dealt with. And Elisha watched him, and he said, strike the ground. And he waited for the arrow of victory. He made it possible. The door, the window was open. There, there's always a window of time, guys. You notice when the king made the mistake, shot just three times, the prophet didn't say, man, what's wrong with you? You should have shot five or six times. The king didn't have the option then to pick up two more arrows and say, okay, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Once he missed the moment, the moment was gone. There are windows in time for you to act on the promise of God, act on the word of God, act on the command of God, act on the stirring of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we just want to wait and see what everybody else does. You can't live that way. There's times where we must respond to the word of God and move forward as one. 
And the king shot three arrows thinking that was enough. But we all know half-hearted doesn't win anything. You can't half-hearted serve the Lord. You can't live this life half-hearted. It, 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 what happens is you might take back, you might, you might fight off the next attack, but really you're not making any progress. And the reason I bring this up today, the reason we're talking about this today is we've been talking about breaking through. And I want us to redefine what it means to break through. What does it mean to you to break through? Because for a lot of us, breakthrough feels like when this attack stops, when I don't have to deal with this anymore. This thing I've been dealing with over and over for many years, I just, oh, finally, it let up. And I praise God and I thank God with you because I believe that's the first step of breakthrough. But what did it say? The breaker goes before them. They go through and they break out. There's breakthrough and then there's breakout. That God wants you to go beyond. Notice it, he says they go out, they break out, they break through. And it says their king goes before them. The Lord is at their head. These people don't just stop when they get on the outside of the walls. They keep going. Let me just put this into very honest terms for you. There's been plenty of times that We've struggled with something, and, and we've prayed through it, and we've just said, Lord, we need your help. We can't do this without you. We've prayed through it. We've, we've fought. We've stood together. We've, we've said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. And then I felt like the moment it felt like things let up, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we won. And we stop. You know, we've had people that were rushed to the ER and, and had to go emergency surgery, and we thought it Man, this is a life or death situation. We got together, we prayed. And they, then the doctors say, I don't know what happened, but you don't need surgery anymore. You're all right. And they send them home and we stop praying. Because the immediate threat is over. But guys, God didn't call us to band-aid solutions. And if you're living a life where the only time you bow your knees in prayer is when you're under attack and you're feeling like something is very wrong and you just want that feeling to go away, then I'll tell you, it will keep coming back. There are things that God wants you to deal with and he's going to cause breakthrough in these areas so that you're going to have some success. You're going to see some victory in those areas that you've been fighting those battles over and over again, but you can't stop fighting just when it seems like it was letting up. So many of us will do that. Man, I don't have those cravings anymore. Praise the Lord. You keep fighting until God tells you to stop. There's somebody, one of my friends is in trouble. And Lord, I'm going to come to you right now. I'm going to pray on their behalf. They call you. They say things are better now. Oh, good, I can stop praying. You keep praying until the Spirit tells you to stop. Let me ask you. If you were in the king's shoes, wouldn't you have felt a little frustrated? I would have felt frustrated. If you wanted me to shoot five or six times, why didn't you tell me to shoot five or six times? This is on you, not on me. That's your fault, Elisha. I know you're an old guy and you forget things, but if you wanted me to fire, I would have fired 10 times. If you had said fire 10 times, what do you expect of me? This story brings back memories of helping my dad in the garage. <laughs> right? Young men know what I'm talking about. Where he's like, you know, 
hand me this. And you're like, uh, you're praying for a prophetic gift so you know what he's talking about. But you don't want to ask because then you want to seem like a man. And, uh, you know, there was plenty of times that your dad would be like three steps ahead of you and not quite sure where you were at. And you're just worried because like, oh, God, I don't know. He said a three-quarter wrench. I don't know what a three-quarter wrench is. Like, I don't know any of this stuff. Thank God we have good dads. Some of you say, no, I didn't. But we all, <laughs> we have a good father in heaven who's patient with us. But I remember that feeling of like, if that's what you wanted me to do, why didn't you just tell me that? Why didn't you just say it? And this is what the king must have felt. If you'd wanted me to fire six times, why didn't you just say it? The answer wasn't five or six times. The answer was keep shooting until God says stop. What should he have done? There's no way in, in the world he would have known six times was enough. But what he could have known was, I'm going to keep shooting as silly as I feel. I'm going to keep shooting until the prophet says that's enough. Can I be honest? My prayer life often falls into this pattern. The Lord says, pray, so I pray. And I figure, that was long enough. I judge by the time. Or I judge by the words I said, right? I think I covered everything. I think I covered all the topics. I've hit all the bases. There couldn't be any other thing to pray about. Rather than listening and saying, Lord, when do you want me? How, how long do you want me to pray? What do you want me to pray? When do you want me to stop? When have we broken through? And I want to read you something from the book of Ephesians. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Ephesians 6 is a chapter about warfare. Now maybe some of you are uncomfortable with so much talk of warfare. But you were born in a time of war. Maybe not the war that other people are, see around their windows and see around their houses. We've been blessed to live in Canada where we don't have to worry about somebody taking over our city. We don't have to worry about a, a, a war band riding through and taking over and shooting people to get in their way. We don't have to worry about that. But there's a war that we don't see. And the scripture is very clear about it. There's a war going on right now. There's a war for our souls. There's a war for the city. There's a war for our nation. There's a war for our kids. And we're on the victory side. We're on the side that wins. But you have a part to play. Ephesians 6 starts talking about children and parents and marriage, which is just, is just as much warfare as anything else, isn't it? But he moves on to the armor of God. He says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, our warfare, our battle is not against flesh and blood. People are never our problem. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, if you just spaced out when I read that, you're not alone. Many people because we can't see it or understand it, we just kind of skip over it. 
But that doesn't make it any less real. There's a battle that needs to be fought. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say, this is God's battle, stay out of it. He says, it's your battle. It's our battle. Our battle. He doesn't say the Lord's battle. It is the Lord's battle, right? But he says it's our battle. Anybody here think it's a good idea to show up to a battle not ready to fight? Anybody think it's a good idea to show up to a battle with some sandwiches? Just chill for a while and hope the other guys take care of the problem? It's a good way to get shot, isn't it? At the very least, it's a good way not to help out your brothers and your sisters in arms. There is a battle whether or not you want to acknowledge it. There's a whole group of Christianity that does not want to talk about this stuff because it seems a little weird. We're talking about invisible things. Human beings don't like to talk about invisible things because it takes away our feeling of control. I can control the things I see. I can understand the things I see. The things that are unseen confuse me. They frustrate me. They're a little weird. They're a little creepy. And people that believe in them are even weirder. That's why I don't go to the word church. They believe in that stuff. <laughs> Lots of other churches in town believe in it too. Whether or not you believe in it doesn't make it any less real. There's a whole bunch of people that didn't know what germs were back in the day. It didn't mean they weren't going to catch a virus. I don't believe in invisible germs. I don't believe in that stuff. I'm just going to drink the water from this well that everybody else drank from and seem to get sick. You don't have to believe in it for it to affect you, right? You don't have to understand it for, you to, for it to affect you. There's a war going on. Now, that's not a terrible thing. It's only a terrible thing if you think you're on the defensive all the time. But when you know what God is doing, God is moving. God is at work. His kingdom is advancing. Guys, we're not on the defensive side here. We're on the side that's moving forward. This is a good thing. God is taking back what the enemy has stolen. He's redeeming things that we thought were lost. This is good. But our battle is against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Heavenly places does not mean heaven as you've imagined it. Heavenly places, or literally the heavenlies, is talking about the unseen realm. We can't see it, but it's there. And it says this, Therefore, because of this, here's how you fight. Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. When you've done everything to stand firm, the next verse says this, stand firm. Having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now listen, this sounds like you've been going through some stuff. Look at what he's describing. He says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. What do you want to do when you've resisted in the evil day and, and, and all of a sudden the arrows are, are falling around you and nobody's shooting at you anymore? What do you want to do? I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to go take a nap. That's what I want to do. The evil day, have you ever had 
that season of your life where you felt like all of hell was unleashed. And you were just, the best you could do was just like stand, stand. He says, having done everything to stand, just keep standing. Have you ever felt like, God, I feel like it's a major victory that I'm not lying on the ground right now. What do you want to do when you're done? The battle's over. Nobody's fighting you anymore. You just want to say, oh, thank God. Let's go on vacation. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. R&R is a good thing. Probably your best opportunity for victory is right after you fended off an attack. You ever wonder why God did that great miracle where he caused the earth and the sun to stay in the same alignment for a really long period of time? The earth stopped. I don't know how God did it. I'm assuming either, either God made it look like the sun was still in the sky or God literally stopped the earth. I don't know how he did it. Uh, maybe a scientist among us would be able to guess. However God did it, God did it. And the reason he did it was that Joshua and his forces had won the victory. But Joshua said, we're not quitting until they're fully taken care of. So God, make the sun stay in the same place because we're not quitting until we've chased them down and won this once and for all. He could have just said, we won. Let's go home. Let's have a meal. We're all tired. But instead he said, Lord, keep the daylight so that we can fully win this battle. It says here, you've resisted in the evil day. You've done everything to stand. That you've quenched every fiery dart of the evil one. Who in the world wants to keep going after all of that? But the next verse says this. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The beginning of this church in Ephesus began with a a great move of God that was initially resisted by the Jews of the area. After it was resisted by the Jews of the area, the Christians relocated to a pagan school to keep teaching. Then all of the Gentiles, the pagans of the group, gave up their magic, gave up their books of magic, burned them in the public square. And the gospel was so influential that this city of Ephesus, which was a port city, a city where a lot of different religions had come in, a city of great wickedness, a city that was devoted to the worship of Artemis, as the Greeks called her, Diana, as the Romans called her, this great goddess, mother goddess. This city of Ephesus began to shift. So much so that the people who made their living off little idols started rioting because their business was going away. The church began with one of their leaders getting dragged out and beaten in public. So Paul writes them and says, I know you're under attack, but God's given you everything you you need to stand firm. Don't worry, your battle's not against people. It may seem like it is, but it's not. 
This is where your battle is. Stand firm, resist, quench every fiery dart of the evil one. You'd think those people would have a good reason to be on the defensive, right? The Jews of the area don't like them. The Gentiles don't like them. Nobody likes them. People are trying to kill them. And then he says, but pray for me. Pray for all the saints. Pray for people that don't live here. With, be alert in the spirit. What word does he use? With all perseverance. What does perseverance mean? You just keep going until God says stop. Perseverance means that you keep pushing forward even when there's every, every feeling in you, every temptation in you to quit fighting. You keep moving forward until the Lord says you've done it. Perseverance just means keep going. Have you prayed with perseverance lately? Do you know what that means? I'm going to keep praying until the Lord says you're done. He says be alert in the spirit. You see, prayer should not just be, here's my list. I got it from Facebook. Here's what people say I should be uh, praying about today. Somebody sent me an urgent, well, if there's prayer requests, pray about the prayer request. But your main efforts in prayer are not coming from all the things you can think of, but from listening to the voice of God, being alert, praying. So Paul writes to a church that's under attack, and then he says, and pray for me that when I go out, that God will give me utterance in the opening of my mouth. You see, Paul is teaching them, don't just be defensive. Because the apostle Paul was acting as an offensive arm of the church. To go into, go into territories, he said, my goal is to preach Christ where he has not been named. He preached all the way, he, he headed all the way, he didn't stop at Italy. He moved all the way with his goal to get to Spain. In that day and age, that was near impossible to get through all of that territory with that many people hating you and preaching the gospel. One man preaching the gospel in all these places. He's telling the Ephesian church, don't settle for just withstanding the attack of the enemy. When you've done everything to stand and every arrow shot against you has been quenched and the battlefield has, has fallen silent and you're finally standing there alone saying, I survived. Now, pray at all times in the Spirit with perseverance and petition. Keep the saints in your prayers and pray for me. God, can I just take a break? Because when God said to us that he's going to cause us to break through this year, in some areas that we've been fighting for a long time. I'm just naive enough to believe that. I believe you will break through. The reason I say this right now is because when you break through, you've got to know what breakthrough looks like. To most of us, breakthrough just seems, it finally seems like I'm not fighting that battle anymore. And you have an option, guys. You can fight it off so it's not a problem today. Or you can keep fighting so it doesn't come back. Or it doesn't harass your friends. It doesn't harass your family. Jesus said, if I cast out all the evil spirits out of this house, if I clean this house, but you don't occupy it with something, they'll come back. The same people that David was fighting when he killed Goliath that had been harassing Israel for years and decades and decades were the folks that were there because Joshua and the Israelites didn't keep fighting. 
They just stopped when they were done. If they had kept going, they would have stopped it. They would have prevented these people from attacking them later, but they didn't. Only Caleb said, there's still guys up there. There's still giants up there. Let's go get that mountain. We're not done. Many of us are content with just having those three victories and taking back what was lost. But God says, keep shooting until I tell you to stop. Keep praying until I tell you you're done. Keep fighting until I tell you it's over. Listen, sometimes that takes a day. Sometimes it takes a year. The only way you know is to be listening to the Spirit of God. And we'll see victory. I'm tired of fighting the same battles over and over again. Most of the time we fight the same battles over and over again because we were content when the enemy stopped punching us. And you just got to keep punching back. You ever seen a boxer in the ring fight off the attack, hunker down and get some jabs in? He gets some jabs in, he gets some hooks in, and finally the guy that's been hitting him against the ropes is, is backing up, right? He's backing up because this guy's hitting back. So he backs up. Now what does that boxer do? He might be so tired, he'll just, he'll just take a break. But if he wants to win, he keeps going after the guy. The guy's backing up, what's he doing? He's keep coming at him, hitting him, hitting him, hitting him until he gets him up against the ropes. We're not doing this with people because people aren't our enemy. But there is a battle out there. And the enemy hits you and he buffets you, as the scripture says. I'll use a Bible word so that all my boxing terminology here doesn't sound too fleshly, okay? So <laughs> we use a Bible word, which is buffeting. Buffeting just means punching until you're black and blue. Boxing metaphors are in the Bible. Did you know that? Boxing's in the Bible. Praise the Lord. So he keeps hitting. And maybe you felt like you were that guy against the rope. The enemy's just hitting you and hitting you. And finally, somebody preached a message. You were here on New Year's or, or you, you were reading your Bible and something came alive to you or, or you were praying and God gave you something and you finally had the guts to punch back and you punched back once and surprise, surprise, it seemed to do something. So you hit again and it seemed to do something and you hit again and you hit again and the devil is backing off and you're saying, yes, I won. But if you don't go after him, He's just going to come back with the same old stuff you dealt with before. Breakthrough isn't when the battle seems to be easing up. Breakthrough is when God says you're done. Keep fighting. Don't be half-hearted about this. Don't just shoot three times. Keep shooting until God says you're finished. Now listen, Jesus said, don't pray like the Gentiles who think they're heard because they use a lot of words. I know a lot of people who pray for like, three hours and barely get anything done because they're just trying to pray everything they can think of. Sometimes all it takes is six words. Sometimes it's pray, listen, pray, worship, listen, pray. But just keep at it until the Lord says, that's it. You beat this thing. Amen? God didn't call us, he didn't call me to pastor a bunch of wimps, and you guys aren't. Thank God. But we all feel weak at times. And the Bible doesn't say, forget the weak, I'm done with them. He says, let the weak say I'm strong. Then he says, let the strong bear the burdens of the weak. 
I love this. Paul says, when you're done with your battle, look around. Look around at the saints and see who's fighting and fight with them. Because the victory you just won may be the victory they need. The comfort that God gave you is the comfort they need to be comforted with. God has called you to this. I believe with all my heart you're going to win. I believe with all my heart you're going to overcome. I believe with all my heart God is not finished with us and that he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How do you know you're done when God says you're done? Paul kept saying, I kept pressing on. I keep pressing on to the goal of the high calling of the mark of Jesus. I keep pressing on uh, to this high calling of God in Christ. I keep pressing on until I'm done. And when he said he was done, there was a point in his life where he said, I finished, I'm done. Let me go see Jesus. Because once you're done, you might as well go see Jesus. Amen? Stand with me this morning. <laughs>